You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the uh, five-member teaching team here at New Hope, and I've got the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, In 1939, a man named Percy Spencer um, was working with Raytheon to um, develop and produce combat radar equipment. Now, this is before we were involved in World War II, but uh, things were looking pretty dicey at that point. And it became this huge project. He went from 15 employees to 5,000 employees, um, and they were really working hard on developing this radar, which, of course, was a, a huge factor in our uh, ability to be able to compete in the war. Um, and it was the military's second, um, second priority behind the Manhattan Project, which, of course, was developing the atom bomb. Well, one day, while Spencer was working on this thing, uh, he he was working on building magnetrons for radar sets. I have no idea what that means, but that's what he was doing, looking, trying to find this combat radar, when he noticed that as he was standing in front of an open magnetron that was at work, that the candy bar in his pocket had melted. tell you, that doesn't give you a little heebie-jeebies. So he thought... That was interesting. So he started with his employees starting to try to heat other kinds of food, and they started with popcorn. And so he made, took this kettle and took the top off of it and put the popcorn inside and then and aimed the radar down into the, the, the kettle, and the popcorn popped, the world's first microwave popcorn. And uh, he, he uh, thought, well, what else could we heat up? So they put in a, an egg. But they left the egg in the shell, and so they put the egg in the kettle, and they heated, or not heated up, but sent the radar through that. And unfortunately for one of his employees who stuck his face down in the kettle to see what was happening with the egg, the egg exploded all over the poor guy's face. I hope he was all right. They didn't tell me more of that in the story. In any case, the microwave oven was born. It wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking to develop radar for combat use, But instead, they got this surprise end product. Um, There's a lot of stories like that in science where things get discovered by accident. If you just Google that, uh, you know, discovery by accident or surprise discovery, there's all kinds of sites that come up that talk about things like that. Um, Where something is working on, somebody's working on something else, but then they have this thing happen over here, totally unexpected. Well, that's kind of like today's account that we're going to be looking at in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis in chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel. And that was uh, another kind of a story where working toward one thing and then ending up on another um, where you least expect it. Now, last week, Steve did an excellent job of going through the flood account with us. Three chapters in one sermon. God bless him. And he did it, and he did it well. But the descendants of Noah now have multiplied since uh, the flood. Um, in, in chapter 10, it, it, it tells us about the descendants that happened from Noah and his three sons. He told them, God told them, be fruitful and multiply, and that they did and did well, um, and fill the earth. That was their command, be, fr- be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then the next story, right after naming the descendants, the fruitful and multiplying part, comes the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11. So it's been probably... And it depends on who you read and how they count. About a thousand years since the flood. I know that it's just we're in Genesis chapter 11 and we've covered 
millennial after millennial. But that's the way it is um, at the very beginning of Genesis. It's just kind of a brief overview of civilization. But um, about a thousand years since the flood, but they had not filled the earth like God had commanded. They multiplied all right, but they remained huddled together in one region. It was called the Plain of Shinar, uh, which was also known as Mesopotamia. You might remember that from your ancient history classes back when you were in high school, Mesopotamia. And here's a little map that shows where Mesopotamia is. The um, literal meaning of the word Mesopotamia is land between two rivers. So you can kind of see the two main rivers there, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and, and the land there, that's often referred to as the Fertile Crescent because there was actually water and not just desert. Um, and so, so the, that was Mes the land of Mesopotamia back at the time of where we're going to be reading. So let's go ahead and take a look at Genesis chapter 11 and, and uh, look at these nine verses together. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask your help in taking a look at this passage. 
Help us to glean the truth from it that you would have us. Help it to be uh, truth that we can apply to our hearts and that you will use to transform our lives. We ask for your Holy Spirit's guidance. Get me out of the way, Lord. Let your word shine through. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last time when I was speaking, I was telling you that in Bible study, what we like to do is start with questions that we came up with when we were studying a passage. And that's just my modus operandi. That's what I do when I tackle a new passage. First, I translate it from the original language, and then I go and I start asking questions. What things don't I understand? What, you know, why did he say this? Why did this happen? You know, what was the custom behind that? I ask all these questions and, and write them down. And then I find that asking the questions is really helpful because then I'm able to... Um, have a place to start researching. And that's a good thing because I'm kind of scatterbrained and it helps to have focus. And so that's what I do. So we're going to start this morning with some questions. I've given you a handout. I hope everybody has a copy. If anybody needs one, Scott probably has the... Anybody? Everybody good? Okay. Um, fill in the blanks and the answers will be on the PowerPoint. Um, and you can just follow along with me. No, no pressure. If you don't want to fill it in, nobody's going to judge except maybe me. Okay. So, all right. Just kidding. Okay. So first question I asked was this. What was the significance to what they were building? Okay, what, what's so bad about having a tower, okay? And so what, what, are they, what are we talking about? Well, it was Mesopotamia, and at the time period, um, there was a, kind, a certain kind of tower called the ziggurat. You might remember that from your ancient history days, too. And the ziggurat was a structure very frequently found in Mesopotamian cities. They were built on top of a platform which was either rectangular, oval, or square. And then they were a tower on that, and it was this ascending tower um, with receding tiers. So it kind of got narrow as it went to the top. It was sort of like what you would think of like a pyramid, the Egyptian pyramid, except it was flat at the top rather than having a point. Um, and the other thing that was characteristic of this kind of tower was the staircases, because that was the point of the structure. The, way, the reason that the pagan Mesopotamians were building staircases was because they were trying to give humanity access to heaven and the gods access to humanity. So it was kind of a bridge between heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, the ziggurat at Babylon, Babylon was known as the house of the platform between heaven and earth. So you get this idea of, of trying to connect the two. Um, so it was like a convenient stairway for the gods to come down into their temple and, and city. Well, so why would that make God angry or get such a reaction from God? Well, first I think we can take a clue from the language that we read. Let us build for ourselves a city, for ourselves a name. God wasn't even in the equation. And even, even their, their idea about having these pagan gods coming down and visit, it really was all about them. Um, Sorry, thought just went out of my head. Okay, so there's no thought of God in their aspirations. Really, they had turned their backs against God, on God. They were on a track marching straight in the other direction, away from him rather than toward him, with determination in their eyes. You know, they were no different than the people who had died in the flood a thousand years before. And they were also in direct disobedience to the command in 9.1. Remember, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were supposed to go out, spread out, and fill the earth, but they hadn't. They were sticking together. 
with great determination. Um, because remember what they said for their reason for building the, to- the tower was, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Otherwise, we're going to be doing what God told us to do. <laughs> so therefore, we're not going to do it. Now, that idea of the rebellion shows up really clearly when you get a look at the structure of how this story is put together. And I've given you a little chart on the back of your sheet. Um, and we can have that chart. Yes. Okay, so you'll notice at the beginning, verses 1 to 4, these are all from the people's perspective, okay? And the first thing is one language in common speech. Then you've got the language, come, let us, whatever, okay? And then, then they say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower. Let us make a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. So that's kind of the basic outline of what the people say. It's really interesting to see what God responds with. And we can have the other side of that chart. Again, now you've got, instead of A, you have A prime, which is kind of a, um, it's an answer to A. One people, one language, come and let us, same language. But then you start to get this differentiating at C. Instead of um, let us build ourselves a city with a tower, God says they're going to cease to build. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. And God says, okay, you want a name? Your name is Babel. And then finally, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth, in E, the Lord scattered them over the whole earth. They're, they're Hebrew word for word with you know, a few twists here and there, but you can see how that pattern is. Um, so their goal and God's response to it side by side like that really shows up their sin. They were doing more than attempting to uh, build an impressive building project or show interest in other gods. For ourselves, it kept saying. It was all about them. They were seeking to replace God with themselves. Just like Eve did. If you remember when Satan was trying to tempt Eve, successfully uh, tempted Eve, into eating the forbidden fruit, he says this, God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what did Eve do? Hand it over. She took the fruit. Why? So she could be like God. What do you think the, these, these power builders were doing? I think it's the very same sin. And you know what? Trying to replace God with ourselves never ends well. Never does. Um, another way to look at the structure is, um, and I I sort of outlined it for you on that chart, but that's the second thing that's on the back of your sheet, is this thing called the chiastic structure. It's very, very common in ancient literature. Chi is the Greek letter, what we would call X. And so, you know, that's why you see Xmas, because Chi stands for Christ, okay? And so that that X letter, you get this crossing of of the A and B, and, and this is the way it's usually set up. And there can be many more letters besides A and B. But you've got A, which is answered with A prime. You've got B, which is answered with B prime. But then there's this middle thing, this X, which is the central big point of the whole structure. Now, let's take it to Genesis 11, and I'll show you how it works. So you've got A prime, or A, excuse me, at the top. And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the Hebrew because I don't know Hebrew, but... um, all the earth one language, and down at the very bottom of the story, 
you have the language of the whole earth in this exact same Hebrew. Do you see it? Then B, people settled together there. And then B prime, people dispersed from there. Okay? Then C, they said to each other, but in C prime, they couldn't understand what each other was saying. All right? And then you have the come now, let us make bricks. And then God saying, come now, let us confuse both mentions of the city and the tower. But look at what's in the middle of this whole thing. And the Lord came down. You. You know, it's like when you were a little kid and your mother said, okay, that's it. I'm calling your father. <laughs> right? Okay. And the Lord came down. And I find it kind of ironic that they built the staircase so the gods could come down. They weren't really thinking who was going to come down that staircase. <laughs> kind of ironic that that's what, that's what the, uh, the wording is there. The Lord came down. Now, did God have to come down from heaven to see it? No. God is omnipresent. It's very clear in the Bible. His presence is everywhere. He's a spirit. He's not ever located in one place. He's located everywhere. So God already saw it. So then why is that the Lord came down thing there? I think it's anthropomorphism, which is a fancy way of saying giving um, uh, God a human characteristic, not because he's limited by a human characteristic, but to help us understand a little bit about him, a little glimpse you know, through a human viewpoint, what that would be. And that idea of him coming down, I think, um, is, the, is a detail that, um, that compares God the creator to what his creation could construct. You know, what could we do that's big to God? There's this great story, not true, but it's a little joke. But a man, very rich man, was very concerned. He knew he was getting close to his end, and he did not want to leave everything he had worked for behind. And so he prayed and he said to God, can I just bring something? I worked so hard my whole life, something of my riches with me in heaven. God said, no, we don't do that. You don't need anything when you come to heaven. And he said, no, I really, really, I just, I can't even die in peace. And God said, okay, you can bring one suitcase. One suitcase, that's it. Okay, so the man took it upon himself to sell off a great deal of what he owned and he got gold bars and he lined his suitcase with these gold bars. And so sure enough, as he was dying, he had his hand on that suitcase, ready to take it to heaven. And the Lord brought him home. And so he walks through the heaven's gates, and St. Peter's at the, the door, and he says, well, I, you can't bring anything in here. There's no suitcases allowed in heaven. And he said, no, no, I have special permission from God. And Peter said, okay, we'll open it up. Let's see what you got. And so the man opened his suitcase, and Peter looked in, and he said, pavement? <laughs> what can we do? That's big to God. Nothing. There's this great quote I read um, online a couple weeks ago, and it said this, God always has to come down to examine our anthill achievements built in the sidewalk cracks of his creation. I love that. You know, this idea of God having to descend down, to stoop down like we would with a magnifying glass in the crack of the sidewalk, looking to see what man had made. You get the picture what the writer's trying to get at, don't you? With God descending. Um, and there's another thing I wanted to throw in there, that that whole idea of how big God is and how puny what we're trying to accomplish is compared to him, I think we need to have that perspective when we look at that next quote where God says, uh, nothing which, uh, this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. 
He's not saying, if I don't get a grip on it now, they're going to get away from me and I'm going to lose control. No, he's God. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 32, 27, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Answer, no. Right? So obviously, God isn't even slightly challenged by anything a human can put on. So why did God say it like that? Well, I think that God sees how this whole thing is going to end. And it's not pretty. He sees if they're allowed to continue on that chosen course, turning away from him, building a name for themselves, building, um, uh, disobeying his command, if they're allowed to continue, they didn't see it, but he saw the devastation that that sin was going to wreck in their lives and in the lives of their descendants if human pride was allowed to progress unimpeded. Their destruction. So what does God do? He intervenes. Because where they were headed was not going to end well. So then what does this passage reveal about God? Is it to show God's wrath and judgment and power? Or is there another, another more subtle message? I think there is. I had to convince my husband of this one, but he agrees with me now. The Tower of Babel isn't really about crime and punishment. It's not about people in sin and God sending judgment. I don't think it is. I think instead it's a story of God's mercy. It's a God who stepped in before man could destroy himself. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. Because the truth is this, in Galatians 6, 7 to 8, do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. For the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh reaps corruption. The only thing that was going to come out of their sin and their rebellion was bad. And so God stepped in. It was mercy not letting them go where they were headed. He stepped in and he altered his course because he's good and he loves. Proverbs says, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Another proverb says, he who loves transgression loves strife. He who raises his door seeks destruction. God saw where man was headed, and in his mercy, he stepped in and intervened. He could have turned away and let them have what they wanted, but he loved them. He created them for a very special purpose, and he wanted to bless them by getting them back on track and giving them another chance to get that fulfillment. They really were chasing after a very shabby substitute of uh, what God could give them. So he squelched their independence, and he made them dependent on him once more which they really were all along anyway, but now they understood it. So then the last question I wanted to ask before we get to what this all means to us is why was this story important to the Hebrews of Moses' day? Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy were all written by Moses, given to God, uh, given by God to him. And so every one of these stories has to have had a significant impact on, on them, on this nation. Remember who they were. They were people who had been slaves for 400 years, million and a half people pulled out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea. Now they're in the desert, and God's giving them this history of creation to kind of give them a sense of who they are, where they're headed, because he is about to turn them into a nation for him. And it was going to be a nation 
that was going to be a light to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. So why is the story of Babel part of what this is? You know, I don't think it's just an intellectual understanding of where all the languages came from, which is what I used to think. I think if we look at the, the account through the eyes of the original readers, the Hebrews who were there with Moses in the desert, being made into a nation that was covenanted with God on their way to the promised land, what did they need to know? Well, I thought of three things I thought could be helpful to us. First is they needed to understand God's broad concern with all people. Yes, they were a nation that was going to be chosen and set apart, but God wasn't just concerned with them. He wanted to use them to reach the rest of the world. His, his, his love has always been for all the world. His plan has always been from the beginning of time to draw the world to himself. It wasn't just about one race of people, but he was choosing that race of people to be his priests and to, to spread the word and to show their relationship with God and show him to the rest of the nations. So they needed to understand that everyone was important. And so you get this genealogy in chapter 10 of all these different nations that got started and showing God's concern for them. Okay, the second thing I think they learned is that in their beginnings, the text demonstrates that the culture from which the people of Israel sprang from, their ancestors, came up short. A thousand years after the flood, they blew it again. And so rather than the Israelites trying to identify themselves with a people or, you know, ancestry, God didn't want them to want that identification. He wanted their identification to be on him. And so therefore, thinking about the good old days and how it was way back then, it wouldn't be an issue if you knew what the story of Babel was all about. And hopefully they would choose a different path. And I think the third thing, which comes loud and clear through the story, is that they needed to see that any nation trying to establish themselves on its own without God was doomed to failure because Israel needed to know it wasn't about them and their military strength or anything like that. It was about God, and if they had kept their focus on him, things would be okay. But when they started careening off on their own and making it about themselves, all bets were off, and they needed to hear that lesson. So then, how does the story of Babel affect our daily life today? Um, other than the fact we have to take classes for languages <laughs> um, and we don't know them instinctively. Well, I think that man hasn't changed a bit since the time of Babel. We still are, the earth is filled with rebellious people determined to build their claim to fame and uh, that tower so long ago, just like them, we were born in the flesh we inherited Adam's sinful nature, and the nature that we were born with is naturally against God. Uh, in, in Galatians 5.17, Paul tells us the flesh, that old nature, sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to each other. You see, the flesh is all about me. Me, 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 me. One of my favorite words should be, but you know how that is. Okay, so our sin nature is naturally self-seeking. That's who we are. We're lusting after self-gratification always. It's that ego that feels this emptiness, that need for significance, that something that we're missing and tries to fill, uh, use the resources in its power to try to fill it. And one of the demands of that flesh is that idea of significance. We want to matter. You know why? Because we were created for glory. 
We were created for glory, but the flesh goes about it the wrong way. Like uh, that Montoya guy in The Princess Bride. I, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? What is glory? Well, Isaiah 43 tells us exactly what glory we were created for. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, whom I have formed, even who I have made. Why are we created? For his glory, for God's glory. The purpose for which we are created is for God to use us for his glory. And only when we fulfill that purpose are we satisfied. Going by way of the flesh is ironically to actually move away from the fulfillment that we're looking for. Because God is our source of content and eternal significance. You know, um, I'm a country music person. I, I love country music, although it's getting very rappy these days. Have you seen that? What the heck? But anyway, um, sorry, young people. I'm showing my generation here. But anyway, one of the guys I love to hear is Keith Urban. And uh, he's a great guy, and, uh, and he has this new song, um, and he, it's about um, growing up in America's heartland, which is kind of ironic since he's Australian. But okay. Um, uh, but it's got all the kind of cult, pop culture references and things like that, symbols of classic scenes in Americana. It's one of those songs you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the whole time he's singing. But the, the chorus goes like this. And I learned everything I need to know from John Cougar, John Deere, and John 316. Clever. But, of course, my ears perked up at the John 316 part. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But he doesn't really explain it in the song. But, yes, last week on the way to church... <laughs> ironically, I heard him in an interview at one of these top 40 country countdown things, and um, they asked him about the song, and what, you know, John Cougar, it was actually John Cougar Mellencamp, who was a great musician, uh, late 70s, that was, had a huge impact on Keith and his music. Um, the John Deere reference, he, he said, was the idea of the, all the time he spent on his family farm, uh, he actually had a different name tractor, but this one was named John, so he used it, but anyway, um, kind of disingenuous when you think about it, but, but anyway, you know, just the idea of riding that tractor gave him a, a real sense of, you know, contributing to the family, of working the land, the whole work ethic thing, and he really felt like that had a great impact on his life. And then the third big John that had the impact in his life was John 3.16. And so the interviewer said, well, how did that impact your life? And he said, well, he said, it, it's, it's, it's a picture of the fact that, um, the most fulfilling times in my life, the times when I was most content and the things, uh, life was especially good, are the times when I'm walking with the Lord and living in peace, uh, living by faith. Don't you love it? I was so excited to hear that. This is a rock star. This guy is extremely successful. He's got all kinds of number one hits. And if that wasn't enough, he's married to a very successful actress, Nicole, Nicole Kidman. They have everything. They have fame. They have fortune. If they want something, they can just buy it. I mean, they have it all. Yet, here he is attributing the best times in his life or were the times when he was living a life of faith and serving God's purpose for him. I thought that was really interesting because anything less than serving God's glory is going to leave us empty. Chasing after our glory is like a puppy chasing his tail around and around Expending energy on something we'll never be able to catch because we're chasing the wrong thing. If we want to participate in a glory that's going to last, that's going to fulfill us, we need to aim higher 
than ourselves. Which is what the Babylonians, I don't know if they're Babylonians, but the people that were building the Tower of Babel certainly had that. Let us build for ourselves. The bar was way too low. And what they were going to get would not ever achieve the kind of glory they were looking for. Because there's nothing greater than knowing that God has revealed himself through us and through our words and through our actions. Um, it's so fulfilling. It's why every time I speak, every time I teach, every Bible study I do, I say, okay, God, how do you want me to reveal you to these people? What do you want about you to shine through this message? Because that's where I want to go. I want this to be about you and your glory because I know in revealing you to them, that's going to impact. That's the power, and that's what I want to do. It's fulfilling because it's what we were created to do. It's how we were designed to function. So, of course, that's what we should aim for is his glory. And it gets even better because what we do that brings God's glory will be rewarded in eternity. So it's win for the present and it's win for the future. Win-win if we're looking for God's glory. One last thought I want to leave you with, with a word of caution from our story. God is not going to stand by idly while we careen down a path of destruction. In Hebrews it tells us, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. And he also wants us to share, get ready, in his glory. It says in 2 Thessalonians, It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That somehow in getting him glory, somehow in revealing him to the world, that it's going to give us glory as well. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I believe him because it's right there in black and white. So recognize those moments when God confounds you, when you were headed off in a direction when it was all about me, me, me. And he dropped you to your knees in helplessness. It's not an act of judgment. It's an act of mercy. He's getting you back on the right path because where you're headed is only going to be destruction. He knows what we need and he guides us in the way to get to it. He knows that we need to keep our focus on him and who he is and what he's done for us. And only by keeping our eyes off of ourselves and onto him are we really going to find what we're ultimately looking for. It's only the glory, it's the only glory that's going to scratch our itch because we were created for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were created for your glory. We understand nothing can fill up the empty places in our hearts but our knowledge and our relationship with you. Help us, God, to take these truths today and apply them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn 
learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.